Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. You wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. The book of 2 Kings and chapter number 8. We are now in our final messages dealing with the life and ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Just a few more messages, just a few more references left dealing with Elisha that we're going to see him tonight dealing with the anointed authority. We're going to see him on Wednesday with the anointing of Jehu and to see all the things that come up with that. Sunday morning we're going to see Elisha and the arrows of deliverance. And then we're going to close it up on Sunday night when Elisha, he's dead But he still has one more miracle to perform before he matches the double. And we can see that even God is using his bones to see people raised. So just a few more left, but some still some major things that are going to occur in miracles and the history of Israel dealing with the prophet of Elisha. Now as we come to the book of 2 Kings in chapter number 8, we can see the continuing story of the prophet Elisha. And notice with me in the book of 2 Kings chapter 8. Notice with me now in verse number 7. 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 7, the word of God says this. And Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God is come hither. And the king said to Hazel, Take a present in thy hand, and go and meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? So Hazel went to meet him and took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, forty camels burden, and came and stood before him and said, Thy son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, hath sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? And Elisha said unto him, Go and say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover. Howbeit, the Lord has shown me that he shall surely die. And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And Hazel said, Why weepeth my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds will thou set on fire. Their young men will thou slay with the sword, and will dash their children, and rip up their women with child. And Hazel said, But what? Is thy servant a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord hath showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. So he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What said Elisha to thee? And he said, He told me that thou shalt surely recover. And it came to pass on the morrow that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died. And Hazel reigned in his stead. And with the Lord's help, we're going to hit another adventure of Elisha. And we're going to see Elisha and the anointed authority. Elisha and the anointed authority. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, we're just asking that you would just help in this passage here and the principle that is given. I know that it is a principle that is not popular, not by any stretch of the imagination, but yet it is taught throughout the scriptures. We're asking that as we examine this, that you would help us to respond to authority properly, knowing that it is you that set that authority in place. Lord, I'm asking that you would just, again, give me clarity of mind, give me wisdom, give me discernment. Fill me with your precious spirit. And that we just trust you to do your own work tonight. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we approach this historical passage, this is an event that truly happened. We start off with the aged monarch. The aged monarch. The current king of Syria was sick. Now, I want to remind you on a map of Israel... That you would have the southern kingdom of Judah. Then you would have the northern kingdom of Samaria. And right above that you would have a kingdom called Syria. Of course Syria is still a modern country today. You could still look at it at a map. You could look and see its capital still the same. Damascus. In fact inside of Damascus it has a road called Strait. Which is the oldest street still in existence. In the world that goes all the way here. So this is an ancient country and it has constantly been a thorn in the side of the Hebrew people. It has always been antagonistic and fighting. In fact, may I remind you of Ben-Hadad II? He's already popped up in scripture. This is the same Ben-Hadad II who sent his servant Naaman to, um, to, uh, to Israel to go get healing from his leprosy. This is the same Ben-Hadad II who was the one who would send the skirmishes down to uh, <coughs> the border skirmishes. And it was Elisha who would tell the king of Israel, hey, that's where the king is set up. Hey, that's where S Syria is set up. Hey, watch out for that army there. This is that same Ben-Hadad II. And so he's already been interacting with Israel for quite a while. And now the aged monarch is dying. Notice with me in verse 7. And Elisha came to Damascus. So notice this, the location of it. Elisha went north. He went to this country of Damascus. So maybe, we don't know why he's there, but maybe you could use your divine imagination. Maybe he's making a follow-up visit to Naaman. Hey, I want to see how Naaman's doing. Naaman accepted Christ as a Savior. He's a believer now. Let me go follow up on him and see how he's doing. Who knows why he's in town, but all we know is that he's in town. He's in Damascus. It was in Syria. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, the man of God has come thither. So you can ima imagine this aged monarch. He's sick in his bed. And he, someone comes in and says, hey, the man of God, that Elisha guy, he's in town. Well, he's in town. Well, this is great. I'm sick. There's a preacher here. This guy knows things. He's done things. Man, this is great. Let's go talk to him. So notice what happened in verse 8. And the king said to Haziel. Now Haziel is an important person. He's going to be very, very important a little bit later within history. But Haziel is the second in command. He's the one who's now kind of running things now that the king is sick. He's the one that uh, the king is dependent upon to make sure things are taken care of. And the king said to Haziel. So he's not trusting any low-life guy. He's trusting the second command. This is important. I need this to get to Elisha. I need someone to go to Elisha and talk to him. 
And the king said to Hazael, Take a present in thine hands, and go and meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So here's the scene. Here's the aged monarch. He's in his bed. He's sick. He's coughing. Maybe they have to prop him up a little bit when they come in. He <laughs> brings Hazael. I hear Elisha's in town. I want you to go take a present. And I want you to ask him. Ask him if he could talk to God to see if I'm going to recover from this disease. Can you do that for me? Hazel says, yes, sir. Verse 9. So Hazel went to meet him. And he took a present with him. Now, when we think of a present, you're almost thinking of something that someone's carrying in, wrapped nicely. But notice the present they're giving to the man of God. Take a present in thy hand, or verse number nine. So Hazel went to meet him and took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camels burden. Now, I don't know if you know much about camels, but they're large animals. And they are beasts of burden in the desert. And they can carry a lot. So you can imagine Hazel saying, I don't know what to get this guy. What do you shop for a man of God? So he said, I'll give a sample of this and sample of this, sample of this, sample of this. He took uh, Ben-Hadad's credit card and just went shopping. He's got 40 camels load. He's trying to make sure that he gets a good impression on the man of God. Can you imagine him taking 40 camels Finding the man of God, knocking on the door, wherever Elisha happens to be at, with all these 40 camels. And came and stood before him, Elisha, and said, Thy son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to thee. So notice this, he's saying, thy son. He's trying to submit to the man of God. No, 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 you're the man of God. We're Even this uh, heathen, this Gentile over here, he's your son. He's trying to say, can you do something for him? Can you bring a miracle? Can you do something? He has sent me to these saying, shall I recover this disease? And Elisha said unto him, go and say to him, thou mayest certainly recover. How be it? The Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. Now, the language of here causes people to think that Elisha's fibbing. He is not. This is the type of language that he's using is he's trying to say, or what is being said, is that you go tell uh, Ben-Hadad he's not going to die of this disease, which is a true statement. So you're not going to, that was the whole thing. Am I going to die of this disease? You are not going to die of this disease. Howbeit he is going to die. It's not the disease that's going to take him though. And so there's the message. Now, the man of God just stands there and stares. He doesn't dismiss him. He doesn't say, all right, well, there's your message. See you later. And so Hazel doesn't dismiss himself. And so they're just standing there in awkward silence. So we start off with the aged monarch. Then we come to a second thing I want to show you. The anointed murderer. The anointed murderer. So Elisha just stares at him. Could you imagine that awkward silence? Here's Ben-Hadad who takes the camels and drops them off and asks the question, Hey, is uh, my, my boss, the king, Ben-Hadad II, he wants to know, is he going to die of this disease? Elisha said, he's not going to die of this disease. Howbeit, he's going to die. And then he just starts staring at him. Hazel's kind of squirming a little bit. Okay, anything else? Anything? And Elisha just stares at him, stares at him, until all of a sudden, the man of God begins to cry. 
Could you imagine how awkward that would be? So nothing's being said. Elisha's just staring at him. And Elisha just starts having tears run down his eyes. The silence was already uncomfortable, but now this guy's crying and weeping. What's the matter? What's going on? So we ask him, notice with me if you don't mind in verse 11. And he, that's Elisha, settled his countenance steadfastly until he, uh, Hazel, was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And Hazel said, why weepeth my Lord? Oh, why are you crying? What's the matter? You're just staring at me. What, what's the big deal? And Elisha said this, because I know that the evil that will do to the children of Israel. While he's standing there looking at him, God gives him a glimpse of the future. And he could see all the atrocities that Hazel is going to do. And by the way, if you haven't figured it out, Hazel's not a good guy. And so Hazel is going to do these things. Notice this. And by the way, he's thinking about Israel. So Hazel is going to do these things to Elisha's people, to Elisha's home, to Elisha's country. He's going to do this. I know the evil that thou will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds will thou set on fire. So you can imagine in Elisha's eye as he's watching them. All of a sudden he could see cities and homes burning in, in flames. And he could see the people screaming and crying as fires destroying their city. And as people are dying within those flames. He says, and their young men will they slay with a sword. And so his mind sees the backdrop of the fire in the cities. And then he could see in the foreground these young soldiers who are fighting for Israel and they're fighting against the Syrians. And under Hazel's command, all the people that are going to die in war. But it doesn't stop. It says, and will dash their children. Notice this. He says, not only are you going to kill the young men in the army, which we can understand, it's not pleasant, but we can understand young men do die in the military. But he says, I see what you're going to do to children. That you are going to be so antagonistic to the children of Israel that you're going to take little kids and you're going to kill them. But if that wasn't bad enough, he says, and rip up their women with child. He says you're going to be so evil. That you're going to take pregnant ladies. And you're going to so hate the children of Israel. That you're going to rip out the children inside of their womb. Just to kill those children. No wonder. Elisha's standing there crying and weeping. Looking at this king and seeing everything that is there. And to see all of this. Now, Hazel tries to pay it off. I meant, how would you like to be known? You're the next Adolf Hitler. Um, thanks. I mean, what do you respond to this when you're told of all the atrocities you're going to do? Now, even the most hated people won't want to admit right away that they're capable of that evil. But he is. Hazel, when he's being told all of the evil things he's going to do, he says, but what is thy servant a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha said, the Lord hath showed me that thou shall be king over Israel. God showed me you're going to be king. And when you become king, this is what you're going to do to my people. And so he, that's Hazel, departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, 
What said Elijah to thee? And he said, he told me that thou shalt surely recover. So, Hazel comes back. Can you imagine the weight of this knowledge inside of you? I'm going to be a mass murderer. People are going to hate me. I'm going to kill kids. I'm going to rip out babies from pregnant ladies. I'm going to be a horrible person. I'm going to be king. And so he goes to his master, Ben-Hadad II. Ben-Hadad's sick and he says, What did Elisha say? It says, Am I going to die from this disease? No, you're not going to die of this disease. Ben-Hadad's like, Yay! Thinking he's going to recover. He's just not going to die of this disease. And so what happens? Verse 15, And it came to pass on the morrow. So the next day, he didn't even wait a week. The next day that he, Haziel, took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died. From what I'm told, this isn't like a washcloth, but it's like a heavy blanket, except it's even thicker. And what he did is he put, drenched it in water. Now a blanket's heavy as it is, but taking a wet blanket, that's even heavier. And now taking a material that's thicker... And you place it on an older man who is dying of a disease. Who doesn't have health within himself. And what he did is he laid it on the guy's, on Ben-Hadad's face. And he covered his face. And made it so the, the king could not get it off of him. He actually kind of suffocates within that heavy blanket. He doesn't have enough strength to go up there. It's on his face. And he dies. It's an assassination. He's trying to do it so it looks like an accident. Not much of investigation. But he kills Ben-Hadad II. And just to put more cruelty. You know what Haziel named his kid? Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad III will be the next king after Haziel. After Haziel's done with all of his stuff. So here's this king that dies. This king who's over, Hazel now becomes this. And you're like, what in the world is this all about? I meant history lesson? What is God teaching in here? Which brings me to a third thing I want to show you in the principle of this. The authority minded. The authority minded. Remember I said the second point was the anointed murderer. Do you know? In fact, I'll tell you did you know in just a second. Haziel means whom God sees. So the word Haziel, his name means whom God sees. And did you know that God sees everything? That God is not surprised. God is not caught off guard. God sees what's happening. But let me tell you again that God is not just a spectator of history. He is the controller of history. May I show you something very interesting earlier in the life of Elisha and Elijah? Notice with me in the book of 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. If you remember 1 Kings chapter 18, we have the uh, historical account of the God off within Mount Carmel, where it was Elijah versus the 450 prophets of Baal. In Second or in First Kings chapter nineteen, we could see that because of fear of Jezebel, that Elijah 
went and hid himself and he asked to die. And God repairs on him and he talks to him that the journey is too great for thee. And at the end of it, when God is recovering Elijah, God gives Elijah three responsibilities. Three things that Elijah is going to do. And I may remind you of the time frame. This is 30 years before the event we just covered now. 30 years before. Notice with me in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. And I want you to put your attention on verse number 15. And the Lord said to him, Elijah, go return thy way in the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Do you know what one of Elijah's responsibilities was? His job was to make sure Hazael was anointed. Now we know that God took Elijah up, but that's why he trained Elisha. Elisha was going to complete Elijah's task. It was Elisha that anointed Hazael, and that's what he did at this event that we covered earlier, that under God's command, Hazael was anointed and told he was going to be king over Syria 30 years before the event happened. You say, well, wait a second, wait a second now. Why would God allow a murderer to be in Syria? Well, that's a good question. Let's see if the Bible has an answer. Notice with me in the book of Romans, chapter number 13. The book of Romans, chapter 13. Now we're going to teach you something. And I'm going to teach you something that most people do not want to learn. All right, so controversy. Here's something that people do not want to understand because we like to criticize and we like to complain. But let me show you something. The Bible talks about the book of Romans chapter 13. The book of Romans chapter 13 and God gives a, an important principle in the book of Romans chapter 13. Notice with me in the book of Romans chapter 13 and notice with me starting at verse number 1. Romans 13 and verse 1. Let every soul... Be subject unto the higher powers. That higher powers has the idea of government. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Verse number one states clearly that it is God that places people in government. It is God who places them there. You say, well, wait a second. God placed people in authority? Yes, and God knows what he's doing with them. But it is God that chose them. There are some times that God allows the people to have a king after their own heart. We could see that in the history of Israel with the first king, Saul. Saul was a man after the people's own heart. And God allowed the people to have them. The next king after that was the king after God's own heart, King David. But God had chose both of them. David even admitted, hey, God chose God allowed these people to be in authority. Now they're responsible for their own actions, but God allowed them to be in authority. Now that's important because in our country, we mix two definitions quite often. We mix the definitions of freedom and rebellion. 
They're not the same definition, but often we put them in the same definition. We make our freedoms an excuse for rebellion. May I say that God's still in charge today? We had a previous president, President Obama, that many of us may not have liked. But you know that God chose him and allowed him to be in authority. It may not be in our thing, but remember, God sometimes allows the people to have someone, a man after their own heart. And by the way, I honestly believe that our previous president was a man after the people's own heart. The people didn't want to seek for God, so he gave them a president that didn't want to seek for God. You had a people that didn't want to follow the morals of the Bible, he gave them a president who didn't want to follow the morals of the Bible. You had people that had a certain mindset of thinking, so he gave them a, t- a president who had a certain mind thing of thinking. Now we have a current president. Now this is where some people mix definitions. Uh, uh, another thing, just because God chose someone to be in authority doesn't mean that they're the perfect person. Our current president is chosen of God. Does that mean that he's the best representative of Christians? He is not. But he is the one that God has allowed for this time and this place. It is not a foregone conclusion who is going to win the election this next year. In America, we have the freedom. We have the freedom to choose our leaders. That's not true in most places. And we often take that freedom for granted. You should vote because we have the ability to vote. But if God allows someone like a Senator Bernie Sanders, God is going to allow him to be in control. We could trust, and it will be because that's what the people want. I believe that we'll go back to that idea. And people will soon realize that they didn't want what they thought they wanted. Or you could have someone like a Vice President Joe Biden. If he becomes president, it's not hashtag not my president. He is, he is the authority that God's allowed for this time and this place, regardless of who leads. Now, this is important principle because we have to understand, we're going to talk about this in a second, but we have to understand, first of all, that God has allowed them to be in charge. That means if God placed them in charge, there is a certain way that we should respond to authority. Notice back with me in Romans chapter 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power of, but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. This idea of resisteth here is carrying the idea of rebelling. They that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. God says, I don't care who's an authority you must always come to the place where you're not rebelling against authority. Now, I'm not talking about blind obedience. That's not what we're talking about. But at no time should we have the heart of rebellion. Now, this is different, all right? So when I teach this, of course, when I taught it in high school, hands would go up. But teacher, what happens when they outlaw the Bible, which is probably coming very, very soon? I said, I submit to their authority. Listen to what this means, though. They come to me and they said, the Bible's outlawed. I will have to say, I am sorry. I cannot obey that law, but I will submit to the punishment that is required for me breaking that law. 
I'm still in submission. I don't have a hard rebellion. I'm willing to submit. If they say that it's three years in prison, then it's not what I want to do. But I will submit. I don't say, bless God. God's going to rain down fire. He's going to show you. At no time do we ever have permission from the Bible to be rebellious. Now, again, I told you this is controversial because people don't like this. And Americans definitely don't like this because we mix the definition of freedom and rebellion quite often. Praise the Lord, we have great freedom. I have the freedom to criticize, especially if I vote, I did something about it. I could criticize my administration's policies. Praise the Lord, I have that freedom. But I do not have the freedom to rebel against the authority. You understand? Some people will try to mix those. We have freedom in our country. We have the freedom to pick who our leader is. And some people will mix this idea too. Well, bless God, if it's not a democracy, if it's not a republic, if we don't get a vote, then it's not right. Well, hold on a second. In the millennial kingdom, what kind of authority are we going to have? A monarchy. All right. Do we get a vote? Do we get to say, Jesus, can we vote on this? No, it doesn't work that way. You see, sometimes our freedoms lead to rebellion. But God's the one who's chosen them. Did God choose Haziel? Absolutely. And he served a purpose with Haziel. Now notice it goes on. Verse number three. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Will thou been afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Verse number three is a very practical thing. If you don't get in trouble, you don't have a reason to fear those who are in charge. Those who are in charge have the basic rule of keeping us safe and keeping the laws. Now, we may not like the rules, but they're the rules. And if we just try to do good, for the most part, we're going to be all right. All right? Most of us do not live under an Adolf Hitler rule. Most of us don't have the fear. And so, because we don't live in that type of thing, if we're trying to do good, we don't have to worry about the oppressive ideas here. Verse number four, for he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou shalt do that which is evil, be afraid for he that beareth the sword and beareth not the sword in vain, for he's a minister of God and a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye needs to be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause pay you tribute also. That means pay your taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues tribute to whom tribute is due. That means honor, respect to who tribute is due. Custom to who custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to honor. Verse 7 clearly says that we don't have the right or the privilege according to the Bible to disparage the president. You should always, no matter who the president is, show them respect. Now, again, that was amazing to watch how Christian people violated that during previous administrations. It's amazing to see Christian people violate that during this administration. And unfortunately, they're going to violate it the next one. But I can't do anything about them. All I can do is give you the information that the Bible says. Now you say, well, wait a second, wait a second. I can understand that if you're living in a good government. 
I can understand that if you're living a good king. I can understand that if you have someone that wants to do right. What happens if you have someone that is evil? Well, I'm glad that the Bible answers that. Notice with me, if you don't mind, the book of 1 Timothy, chapter number 2. Now, I told you that this is a controversial message. It's not controversial because the Bible's not clear. It's controversial because we don't like to obey this. It's one of those messages we wish we did not have to hear because then we could go on and rebel like we wanted to. Notice with me in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter number 2. 1 Timothy, chapter number 2. And notice as the Apostle Paul is writing to his son of the faith, Timothy. And notice with me in chapter 2 and verse number 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. What does he mean by that? Notice verse 2 as he clarifies. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life with all good godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Now you say, well, of course, the Apostle Paul is going to say that. Didn't he live in the times of great peace? Well, if you would look and see in history who's actually Roman emperor at this time, you would find it's a man by the name of Nero. And Nero was literally insane. He tried to kill his own mother three different times until it finally took. One of those times he put his mother on a boat full of holes and had them go across the sea with the idea that the boat would fill up with water in the middle of the sea and sink her. She happened to swim to the other shore and survive. Nero was the kind of man who imagined himself as a great director. There's an old saying that uh, as Rome burned, uh, Nero fiddled. It's not quite that way, but it gets the point across. He imagined himself a great director. And so what better backdrop than to burn the city of Rome? The city of Rome, much of the, many of the houses were made out of wood and they were put very close together. And so starting a little fire swept through the entire city. And they say that Nero watched the backdrop and he imagined a great play as it burnt down, as the whole city burnt down. But when the city burnt down, uh-oh, some people are going to be mad. And to cast blame from him, he said, I know, the Christians don't have a country so if I blame them, a country can't come after me. Let's do that. And so Nero started to blame the Christians for the destruction of Rome. He began to spread lies and say, you know what? I talked to the leaders of Christendom. And you know what they do? They're vampires. They have ceremony where they drink the blood of their leader. Oh, you know what I hear about those Christians? They're cannibals. They eat the body of their leaders. Now is that true? The Bible talks about Jesus saying drink my blood and eat my body but he is talking symbolically. But Nero is using this to spread lies and he said it's the Christians that did it. And he put the first of ten Roman persecutions against the Christians. And it was under Nero's hand 
that tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. It was under Nero's hand that Paul took a shortcut to glory. He was beheaded. And it was the same king, the same Caesar that Paul is saying, listen here, pray for the king, honor the king. But do you know who you're telling? Yes, I do. It's Nero. And God says to honor him. You said, why? Why should I honor the king? You know how awful and wicked and horrible he is? Yes. But notice verse 4. Who, this is God, who will, have, uh, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. How in the world are they going to come to the knowledge of truth? By Christians learning to honor their king even when their authority is not right. You know it's natural for people to rebel against an evil king. Anyone could do that. Our king's evil. We'll show him. That's how normal people react. But for a Christian who says, I trust God and I'm going to honor the king, there may be some things that I cannot obey, but I do not have the ability to rebel. And the king says, why not? What's the matter with you? Well, let me tell you, I have a great God up in heaven. Think about Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, even though people are trying to erase history, killed eight million people. Six million of them were Jews. How many people do you think prayed during the World War II time frame that Adolf Hitler would come to know Jesus as their savior? But you know that's what God's desire was? That if Adolf Hitler would have recognized that he was a sinner and because of his sin he deserved hell and that Jesus died for him. If Adolf Hitler would have asked God for forgiveness, God would have forgave Adolf Hitler. You take a Joseph Stalin. You thought Adolf Hitler had a big hit count. Joseph Stalin, 50 million of his own people. He said, you know, in order for communism to work, we got to fix some things. And so we let's take the country of Ukraine. We don't like the Ukrainians anyways. So let's destroy their farms. And the Ukrainians were the breadbasket of Russia. He stopped their farms and starved the Ukrainian people. Just because he didn't feel like they were good for his communism. For things to move up. You take Joseph Stalin. Who thought that all doctors were of Jewish heritage. And so he outlawed all Jewish all doctors. Because he thought it was a great conspiracy. Against him. And when he died. He died of something simple. That a doctor could have healed him. Well, he got his just ends. But you understand, there are some evil people out there. But do you know that Joseph Stalin, after killing 50 million of his own people, if he would have realized that he was a sinner, and because of his sin, he offended a holy, righteous God, and that he deserved hell, and that Jesus was his only hope, and that he would have accepted Jesus as a Savior, God would have forgiven Joseph Stalin. You know, as much evil is in your mind that you think President Obama would have had, that if President Obama would bow his head and accept Jesus as Savior, God would forgive him. Hey, as many faults as our current president has, there's a story that while he was on the campaign trail that a preacher opened up the Bible and showed him from the Bible 
that he was a sinner and because of his sin that he about his or that he deserved hell and that Jesus was his only hope and according to the account from a trustworthy source that preaches the gospel that Donald Trump on the campaign trail bowed his head and accepted Jesus as his savior. You say, "Well, how come he's not a better Christian?" Cuz he's a baby Christian, he's never been discipled. Yes, he has a past. So did you. I'm not defending the man. I'm just saying that God was even able to save Donald Trump if he truly bowed his head and accepted him. If Senator Sanders wanted to get saved, God would save him. You understand, we have to look at eternity view. We need to be praying for these folks that they would come to know Christ as their Savior. Because God is not willing that any shall perish, but all shall come to repentance. Even presidents. Even governors. When's the last time you prayed for Governor Evers to come to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior? I mean, it's easy to criticize his policies. It's easy to look at some of the things you're doing and like, what are you thinking? But do you know that God wants him to be saved? How about your senators? Do you even know the senators of Wisconsin? How about the congressmen? Do you know the congressmen of Wisconsin? God is not willing that any shall perish, but also come to repentance. We need to be praying for all men because God wants them to be saved. How about your mayor? We know that you live in different towns, villages, and whatnot. Do you pray for your mayor? For Seymour, it's Mayor Craft. Uh, I've been praying for him. I've witnessed to him. I've given him a Bible. I want to make a follow-up visit with him soon. But you should be praying for the mayor of Seymour to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. The mayor of Green Bay definitely needs to come to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. Whether you live in Ashwaubenon, Green Bay, Alouez, Oneida, all of those people need to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. How are they going to know it? We have a responsibility to pray for those that have higher power. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet, peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Verse number two says, if you're not in rebellion towards the government, but you're praying for them to get saved, you're going to live peaceably for them. You may not like them, but you don't have to be fighting against them. How many people that we know are just tore up because they hate President Trump. I mean, they can't live a peaceful life. I mean, their whole life is revolved around, I hate this guy. By the way, how many people were like that for President Obama? But that's not how God designed us to live. For this is good and acceptable on the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So what we have here is the principle of anointed authority. That God is the one that puts authority there. And we don't know the reason, but God does. And he has a purpose. He knows he's placed people there for a thing. President Obama was God's good and perfect will for the United States, whether you liked it or not. Our response to him was to pray for him. And to pray that he comes to know Christ as a Savior. People, whether they like it or not, President Trump is God's good and a perfect acceptable will for the United States of America for this time. We have a responsibility to pray for him. Pray for wisdom for it. And whatever president is coming up next, we don't know. 
whether it's this year or in four more years, it's going to be God's good and perfect, simple will. God's put them in authority. God put them there. Our response to that authority is not to rebel, but to live in such of a life where we can pray for them honestly and want them to get saved. If you are busy rebelling and fighting against authority, it's going to be very difficult to want them to go to heaven with you. Here's the principle here. It's a matter of the heart. How do we respond to the authority God has placed in our life? Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.